Hello everyone, welcome back to the left page. We're here today with the excellent R.S. Benedict of the Write Good podcast, which is definitely worth a listen just to get it out of the way. I am Frank, your historian, always online and trying times, and we're here today to do a, to wrap up our special double collab on Kurt Vonnegut. I was in a special bonus Write Good episode on his other work following this one, the one we're talking about today, which was Breakfast of Champions. And today we're going to actually be talking about Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. This is going to be a great time. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It was so much fun to talk about Breakfast of Champions and now Slaughterhouse-Five. It was excellent suggestions both. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I mean, the two books have an, a lot in common. If I recall correctly, uh, originally Kurt Vonnegut was thinking of just writing them together as one book. So I think mm -hmm. they're interesting to look at as a pair because there's a lot of themes in common about how people sort of use or fall into certain delusions and fall into kind of harmful ideas and why and and the helplessness we often experience as human beings and the kind of emptiness at the middle of of the american culture yeah absolutely and a lot with similar characters and a continuity that you kind of feel when you read them so close together which is what i did in about a week right there's a lot in common. I like the constant author self-inserts, which I find kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... It, it plays a smaller role here, but a lot in Breakfast of Champions. And like, just yeah. so bizarre. It, it, yeah, it still it. strikes me as interesting. Yeah, I love that. I gotta love Kurt Vonnegut because as a writer, he writes himself into his stories. And many writers do this and write themselves in as these like amazing, cool, wise gods. He, in Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut writes himself in as a guy having really bad diarrhea in a POW camp. <laughs> so that's where he appears in the novel. <laughs> I mean, he's upfront about it. He's like, yeah, no, that's, that's what I was doing there. Yep. Okay. So on. Let's moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so the just to get us all um, and our listeners on a similar page, it's it's a brief outline of what actually is Slaughterhouse Five. It is, uh, I mean, I, I I put it on our outline with inverted commas, fictional right. uh, retelling of the firebombing of Dresden. Uh, we'll get on that. Why it's it's at the it's on one hand kind of fictional, others like not really. It's it's really interesting. And yeah. we follow a non-linear narrative following the character Billy Pilgrim, his memory and living of the event, along with his biographical life and a lot of his personal thought, delusion. That's when stranger elements start arriving in the story because it carries... Well, it, it, it is on the one hand a, that sort of realist novel about that experience. However, it is all sort of surrounded and circled by what are the existential feelings and ideas of the Tralfamadorians, right. uh, which would be <laughs> an alien species, and we're definitely going to get a lot on this later, and how right. they exist in four dimensions in time, so you're not never really dead because you exist in the past, and how Billy Pilgrim just incorporates that, and how that relates to uh, the actual firebombing and that sort of traumatic experience. The story goes in various chapters as we... The overarching plot is we're approaching what actually happened with the firebombing. But we we keep going backwards and forwards in time all the time. And when we finish it, it, it simply is 
with no sense or reason, as the narrator puts it quite frequently, so it goes. So it goes. So I think an excellent point to start is, well, how, with the prologue really, uh, and how that aspect of history and war and and the retelling can work. Because we begin with Vonnegut like solemnly telling us a story, like he's testifying to us. That he was swearing to a friend's wife that when, because he mentions about writing uh, about his Dresden experience and how that would be key. Right. And she gets really mad when he says that. And she's like giving him the cold shoulder and being real grumpy. And he finally asks, like, have I done something to offend you? And she says, you're going to write it and make it look glorious and beautiful and meaningful. And then they're going to make a movie about it and cast like full grown men about. You know, they're going to cast, like, whatever the hunk, uh, 1950, what, who was the big 1950s hunk at the time? I don't know. They're going to cast James Dean and Frank Sinatra and all those guys in there, these full-grown men, and everybody's going to feel totally good about war, and then gonna they're going to want to have more war, and they'll be fought by little kids, because, you know, you were just a little kid then when this happened. You were just a, basically a baby. Um, he describes himself in the novel i think during his war experiences as what is it like an 18 year old virgin just at the end of childhood so he's yeah. still he's a kid he's a like a ridiculous boy basically but when i mean when you look at war movies when you look at so many war stories there's so there's so much glory in them even when they're supposedly anti-war they still come across making war look fucking awesome yeah like uh, like so many Vietnam War movies, like Platoon was really big and it was supposedly about how like Vietnam was so awful. But like there's still, you know, heroic American soldiers doing these amazing feats of courage and they're so cool. And like making a genuinely anti-war story is really, really challenging. And I, I give him credit for setting out to do this with this novel, but does not portray war in any way as this like beautiful or noble adventure it just kind of sucks it just sucks yeah like i keep thinking about so many like these high-end productions that like we had recently like 1917 which i hate on the title alone uh Uh, dunkirk i remember at least that one i watched uh, which yeah it's not glorifying but there are there is heroism there is sort of heroic figures when in this story Nothing. no one is heroic there's <laughs> just it's dirty and it's awful and it's sickly and it's grimy yeah. and there's nothing redeemable about it it's just senseless and deadly right the closest thing to a hero or a heroic moment is when poor old Edgar Derby stands up to that like American Nazi who's trying to recruit them over the bad guys he just says stands up to the guy and says hey go fuck yourself we're not gonna join your side and like that's the closest thing to any act of heroism (laughs) or nobility in the entire movie or the entire movie in the entire story (laughs) Uh. (laughs) yeah because there's there's nothing else to be heroic about even it's just trying to survive and and make it from point a to point b and not get yourself some infection or or getting shot or getting into trouble right and i find it interesting the way uh vonnegut kind of has these deaths off like in the background like he doesn't build up this exciting you know sensual kind of sexy execution like when the scouts get shot at the beginning we don't see that all we know is oh yeah they went and got shot when edgar derby is executed i think he's hanged we're not there for the hanging he doesn't lead us through this through this like almost this like pornography of war and tragedy of like here's the Mm build-up and here's the climax of the scene when his neck breaks and oh here's the catharsis he doesn't give us that because yeah. Vonnegut has said over and over again that he it really bothers him the way that writers use violence as entertainment and make it palatable and beautiful and noble, and he doesn't find anything glorious in it at all. And he worked very hard, I think, to find to to do this where n- no one dies in a way that's like 
noble or heroic and and no one's this glorious martyr everyone is just like yeah that guy died of sepsis because he had a cut on his foot that guy got hanged for stealing a teapot from a bombed out house like it's just fucking stupid yeah because how it's kind of the question how do you portray like so much killing that like doesn't seem to end and is happening all around and right. he does it in the most deadpan way possible. It's like, oh, yeah, they went around and got shot because, uh, you know, they just did. And, yeah, the other guy, he, he got an infection. Right. Like, the two, the, I think the only two competent soldiers in the entire story immediately get shot. They're not even yes. named characters. Just the two scouts who, who dump Billy Pilgrim and Roland Weary because they suck shit and they're tracking him down. <laughs> and the Germans shoot him because they're like, "Oh, these guys are actually a threat. They're actually good at being soldiers. We got to kill them. Let's take let's take these two assholes. They are clearly not a threat to us. We can capture them very easily." Yeah, because they find uh, Billy and Roland literally uh, wrestling in the snow. Right, and Billy's like a bald eighteen-year-old and like weird and gangly and lanky and limping everywhere. And Roland is just this like pudgy guy who smells like ham all the time. Like <laughs> he's not a threat. He's not a threat. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and, and and it works. At the end of the day, it works. Like you never death isn't at any point like nice it's it's so often it's so frequent and it's so it's not thrilling at all it's just yeah it's so by becoming commonplace in a way that is almost unremarkable you get a much stronger effect which is was i can imagine really difficult to do but he pulled it off yeah do we want to talk a little bit about Roland Weary? We we mentioned his name, and I think he's a, yes. a character worth examining. I, I just... <laughs> uh, just to wrap up our previous point about that prologue scene, which helps connect to the title as well, in it not becoming a heroic portrayal of war, like he... Vonnegut mentions in this prologue to his friend's wife that uh, he will name it the Children's Crusade because of it being so senseless and of just basically victims and children who were getting slaughtered again and again and again. Right. And this was at the end of the war, too, when the Germans were yeah. like recruiting kids because the, the men of fighting age were fucking dead. They were recruiting, like, 14-year-olds and giving them rations of chocolate milk and shit. It was really dark. Yeah, it's... It doesn't, it's not easy work to simply like, you know, these German soldiers, they're, they're not really anything. They're kids because yeah. that's how it was at, at the end of the war. And <laughs> there's no greater example than like uh, Roland Weary, as you are mentioning. Right. <laughs> oh, Roland Weary. So Roland Weary, he's this character in here. who He's every like, Every fucking guy who goes on about how he would be this great hero when he's clearly not. He's, well, basically everyone, there's a whole lot of Roland Weary's rioting in DC tonight as we, uh, as we record this and it's a real fucking fiasco. They're, they're every like chunky, out of shape, wheezing, fucking MAGA chud who thinks he's this individual hero, fucking brave guy who's gonna save western civilization he's every QAnon. he's he's just every sort of person who in his head is this great hero but like he sucks at everything and nobody likes him yeah and he's just i i i'm sure i'm so sure that vonnegut met so so many of those guys in the war and met so many of those guys after the war who like to imagine well if i'd been in there i would have been a fucking badass like no you wouldn't have you would have died of sepsis like Roland fucking Weary, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And I love Vonnegut for including that character because it's not a character we usually have in the war movie. There's usually like the noble heroic guy, the scared guy, the nerdy guy, the big dumb southerner. And there's never this like fucking piece of shit who thinks he who wants to be a hero but is worse than useless. Like it's I think it's Roland's fault that his entire unit got killed. Yeah. Absolutely. He like missed a shot. He missed a shot, gave away their position, and like the German tanks kind of rolled on at him. Yeah, it, and he's it was the only one who got fault. away temporarily. And he keeps imagining himself and the other two right. competent scouts as the three musketeers. Right, we're the three musketeers. And we finally use the phrase three musketeers to the other guys. They're like, get the fuck away from us. You're horrible. Yeah, they, gi- they give him this away. weird look and just, you know, you can figure it out yourself. Bye. <laughs> yeah, we're leaving you. You walk too slow. Even Billy Pilgrim doesn't fare any better. Like he's, he's still just there. Yeah. He. Oh, he's a total loser. He's like a chaplain's assistant. He's not some like badass guy at all. He's this big nerd who's walking funny. Yeah, he's being tossed about from one side of the other and just walking. Like, mm, there's basically yeah. any like, because c- it it isn't like oh he's making these deep reflections and deep considerations over what's going on. But he's just there, and, and that kind of makes sense. He's a very passive protagonist, incredibly passive. Yes, he just sort which of is very strange. endures everything. And it's really hard to center a novel on a passive protagonist. Usually, protagonist is very active and makes a lot of decisions, and Billy Pilgrim's just kind of pushed around and goes, yeah, okay, I'm in a POW camp now. All right, that's cool. Billy really... <laughs> It's interesting because you do get engaged in how he's surviving through the war and how he's going on, but it's he's completely passive. He's simply there, and you, at least the impression I got was that he, he, he was like a bunch of different real people that were like just trying to make it through, but barely able to even think about what's going on because it's just, especially at the end of the war and being this young and being in this place, it's like, what, what even, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the bombing of Dresden, that was after the war, right? So it's like he's still there, even though the war is officially over, but it's like, well, I'm still here. Yeah. Technically, technically a slave, I guess. I don't, I don't know. What what do you what do you how do you deal with that? You just kind of go numb and let it wash over you, and that's how you survive. Yeah, exactly. Like in a way, and and that will help us to connect with the idea of the sci-fi elements and the twelve Hamadorians, which right. is like he's getting further and further in his sort of delusions and ideas, and he just doesn't. The further we get to like the culmination of the horror in Dresden and the actual firebombing, which he basically gets away free because he was in the slaughterhouse bunker, um, right. it, it's that is there is no sense to it. There is nothing, in it. and so like it, it simply makes sense to sense to Billy as a way like oh nothing makes sense since it's all time and we don't really die. We just exist in different time, and that's it's simply it. It is sort of. Um, a conformism and a uh, quiet attitude yeah and he he it's used endlessly in the book like whenever there's some sort of death usually that we don't even see but we're told it, it's mentioned the phrase so it goes so it goes it, it's it, it's one of the things we talked when when we were discussing breakfast of champions that it's like it helps to defamil- defamiliarize us with the right. horror that's going on the language does a lot of this work in creating this sh- these short, brief sentences that like are repeated again and again, and, and they create this impact. It's like, and so on, or yeah. so it goes. Yeah, Vonnegut's amazing at taking these really simple little phrases and using them over and over again in a way that makes it almost like a like a, a mantra or something. Yeah, exactly. There's there's this spiritual poetry to them and it's it's hard to explain how the phrase so it goes ends up having so much meaning attached to it but but it does 
Um, and any time some any time I know someone has read this book, like they'll start saying for a while, so it goes. After a while, you can immediately <laughs> tell when someone's recently read Slaughterhouse Five because you'll hear them say, "So it goes." <laughs> That's true, though. Yeah, but I, it's interesting to. I don't know how much like how much of a Tralfamadorian. Um, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut is here. Like, obviously, a lot of I will not be the first person to point out that the time travel in this book is probably a metaphor for PTSD and the flashbacks mm-hmm. that come from that, and that the Trelfamadorians are some sort of delusional coping mechanism that Billy Pilgrim develops as a way to sort of cope with the horrors that he's been through. And I think it's worth noting that, like, the closer to this terrible event he gets and the worse shit gets, the deeper into this delusion he gets. And it, it, mm. it not even time travel anymore, but like, oh, now I'm in a human zoo with, with a sexy lady. All right. Like, it just gets jankier <laughs> and more ridiculous. Um, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a slave in a, stuck in a slaughterhouse in enemy territory. I'm going to think about titties and aliens for a while. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> But I, I'm not sure how much, how much Kurt Vonnegut is a fatalist versus how much not. I, it, it's hard to say because there's this very strange distance. It's like there are bits where he's in the novel, but there is also this distance between himself, between Billy Pilgrim, between himself and that sort of fictional himself in yes. here. Like how real was the prologue? I don't know. How real is his war buddy? Does his war buddy actually exist? I don't know. Um how how much in common does he share this sense of fatalism and there's nothing that can be done i mean maybe that is part of the coping mechanism too like you take on this mm-hmm. fatalistic attitude because that is how you keep from going fucking crazy and killing yourself but then remember that this fatalistic attitude of oh there's nothing that can be done everything's predetermined is literally what destroys the universe yeah. In the book, like a Tralfamadorian knows that they will accidentally kill everything when they're testing some new kind of fuel or whatever, or a reactor, and they are not going to attempt to prevent this because of this philosophy of theirs. So maybe that's Vonnegut's way of saying, like, this this fatalistic philosophy is a way of keeping us from acknowledging our responsibilities uh, to, to build a better world or or whether he's just really that deep into fatalism and nihilism as well just like yeah everything's gonna die so it goes fuck it i don't know whatever yeah it, it, it's interesting because when, when i when i read it I, at first i'm like okay let's let's try and take all this as like okay there is the the sci-fi elements are real they're, they're not delusion okay but later like going back over it when you add this reading it's it's a very the, the tone is always there but it does gain this this added impact and when you when you mentioned um which i hadn't realized how the delusion gets stronger the closer we get to the firebombing it right. just it strikes you even harder because there's there is this element of like nothing you do really matters or makes any sense and when you are confronted with such a traumatic event, like that makes some sense. That like, oh, okay, this is one way that you can understand and handle this and, and incorporate to like, not, you know, take your own life in the process. But on the other hand, and it, it really does go to, with what you were saying about like how much of this is Vonnegut, how much is the fictional, how much is oh, that conversation that he had or maybe didn't have, how much he had off the uh, the war buddy, it's taking it as like a, a document. Like, this is fiction. At the end of the day, this is a literary work. Um, right. It's stronger historically, to me at least, on its tone and on its impact with the defamiliarization, with the overall atmosphere, like, of all death, off like the children's crusade per se and and like oh does it matter if he did have that conversation or not or how was his effective concrete experience in the war that that doesn't really matter at least not to me and the effects and the tone of like 
a truly non-glorified war experience, right? It strikes me as strong as like this is a document of fiction that carries this impact and this view, regardless of what Vonnegut's actual experience was, wasn't what he felt and thought and handled with PTSD. So I think that right. is only that's what I take from it as like this fictional biographical testimony and memoir yeah it's um it's really telling i think because um, you know i i was googling a lot about the actual fire bombings and uh, you know just trying to go for like okay get my history <laughs> research on right. it if brief and he in, in the story he claims that like that the actual death toll was like oh, oh, upwards to 135,000 um later other historical research narrowed it down to twenty three and twenty five thousand. Uh, the numbers itself don't seem don't really matter. Like it's it's the idea of the horror and like a senseless destruction. And in, right. um, I found a, a, an introduction by him from a nineteen seventy six edition of the book, and I think it tells a lot about his tone towards Dresden and towards Slaughterhouse Five a bit. That's like. Dresden atrocity, tremendously expensive and meticulously planned, was so meaningless, finally, that only one person on the entire planet got any benefit from it. I am that person. I wrote this book, which earned a lot of money for me and made my reputation, such as it is. One way or another, I got two or three dollars for every person killed. Some business I'm in. And it just, it, it drips with the particular Ugh. acid. And he has a pretty good point. Yeah, he he talked a lot about writing and, and he had a lot of interesting things to say about writing and how it's kind of a fucked up business in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, and And that's definitely something there. This idea of like, oh, I, I guess I did benefit from this fucking horrible thing. That's that's cool, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, it's it really hurts because on the one hand, I, I, I he's truly sincere. It feels to me like of it being senseless and it being horrible and just like trying to cope with it yourself by writing. I think that's an interesting way to go about it. But it, it, it's still true that, like, yeah, this this massive horror, I did profit from it. It made me as a famous writer, too, so... Right. I made a consumer product after, out of this, and people introduce me at writing festivals by talking yeah. about this, and people interview me about this, and, and just treat it as, like, this casual thing, you know? That's got to be fucking weird. And I think about that a lot, too, with writers who write about their own personal tragedies like okay you wrote a memoir about being like raped or something it's like now now you're kind of known for that like now you're like ah you're the you're the rape lady all right good for you rape lady let's let's interview you you know yeah fuck what is that it's it's he has a point when it's a very weird business and not a particularly great one because it's especially with these biographical points you do the the level of exposure is on a, such a strong level it, it, it's as you mentioned like it, you become the rape lady that's yeah that's it's it's utterly horrifying right and on the one hand it, it's it's legitimate to be able to write about it and to want to share those experiences and reflect on them however what does it it, it it's t- riddled with tensions and, and contradictions through and through and that is really difficult to handle if still incredibly interesting oh absolutely and I think that's uh, quite a segue to go into the more even more absurd elements of the novel which are <laughs> <laughs> which is the, the science fiction and the Trophomodorians and the lovely Kilgore Trout yeah I love Kilgore Trout. He this fucking gross dirtbag shitty hack writer. Oh, he's the best. He is a recurring character in this in the works of Kurt Vonnegut. I'm gonna point out he was in 
Breakfast of Champions 2. In, in Breakfast of Champions, uh, Dwayne Hoover gets a very harmful idea from reading one of Kilgore's terrible books, and it makes him do terrible things. And in this one, I think it's strongly hinted that uh, there are some aliens in one of Kilgore's Trout's novels that are shaped an awful lot like Tralfamadorians. Just, mm. you know, throwing that out there, isn't isn't that an interesting mm. coincidence? <laughs> <laughs> so again, there's this sort of uh, suggestion that maybe here's Kilgore Trout yet again giving another, accidentally giving somebody a harmful idea, in this case, this idea of we are helpless and then there and there is nothing we can do. And that's an idea that becomes wildly, wildly popular if you believe what's happening at the end of the novel to actually be happening. It kind of, it, it, it's kind of hard to say, like, what's real, what's not. And then again, maybe f focusing on the question of, is it real? Are the aliens real? Or is it all just a delusion might be the wrong focus? Like, um, like maybe mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter that much. Like, yeah. well, it's a book, it's fiction. It, obviously, it's all not real, but... Maybe the question shouldn't be so much, is this really happening? Like, what's the puzzle? It's just sort of, does it fucking matter? <laughs> is anything real? Does anything mean anything? Like, are, are aliens real? Is fucking the glory of the United States real? I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Kilgore Trout is this... He's the ideal pulp writer. Again, massive inverted commas there. Because yeah. he has... Uh, I love that the book says this. Uh, he has a lot of interesting ideas for his stories. All are terribly written. Terribly written. He's written a zillion novels and, like, he's broke his shit. He has a crappy job. Isn't, is he harassing paper boys in this one? Yes, I think he was he, like yeah, he was like the the manager of a, a bunch of paper boys for for paper routes because you know in the old days boys delivered the paper, so his job is basically to scream at children and take money from them. He's yes. just like a total dirtbag. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, a great guy. And like his only fans are Mister Elliot Rosewater and and our boy Billy Pilgrim. Yeah, Elliot Rosewater, who is a very, very rich man who like, has, like, so many of his stories and is possibly the only person with more than, well, rather, let me rephrase that, the only person who intentionally has any of his work. Because <laughs> it's all published in various weird, like, pornographic uh, magazines and very weirder pulps, so, like, it's even to the point that Kilgore has never actually seen his published work. He doesn't have any. He's never received fan mail until Breakfast of Champions. So he is... He's a source of strange ideas. And what we see, or hinted at in this case, is that one of these ideas is this sort of delusion or coping mechanism for Billy Pilgrim that's like, oh... It doesn't really matter because it just goes and whatever we do, it happens. So it goes. Right. right. And I, I've mentioned this during our episode for Breakfast of Champions, but I do love... I'm always interested to see how writers write about other writers and how writers use writer characters. and Because so often it is kind of a self-insertion of, of some aspect of the author of the book. And in this case, like, okay, so you're choosing to write a sci-fi writer as just like a, a total fucking dirtbag. <laughs> what is behind this choice? How much of yourself do you see in that? Or are you dragging other writers? Or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it is. Uh, he's a fantastic character. I love him. <laughs> he is great. He's the best. He's such, he's such a fucking garbage bag. It rules. The point where yes. when somebody, when Billy Pilgrim actually meets him, he's like, what? Yeah, I'm a fan of yours. Are you serious? Why? <laughs> Who the fuck are you? How do you like me? Yeah, like, what? Ew, God. I, I guess you could give me a ride to work. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't know, maybe it's a little bit like Diogenes in a weird way. I'm thinking of the Greek philosopher who was just like this total grimy dirtbag who would like piss in public and stuff like that. Just this only Diogenes maybe had some thoughtful ideas and this guy's just well, he had some good ideas, but of course everybody always picks up on the bad ideas. Yeah, they they always pick on, you know, the ones that make you lose yourself and think everyone else is a robot or that nothing really matters and you're just there. Right. Fatalistic. Right. One of the things uh, I wrote down, and again, fitting with the times, although uh, a lot still up in the air, because one of the things that I kept thinking about, and, and it's one that strikes me a lot for World War One, but not that as much for World War Two, is how do you deal with, like, the, the um, especially, I guess, the nation in this case, that, like, okay, you're, you're representing the U.S., and you're this glorious, patriotic nation, and then you, you see the, the, that particular hero just, you know, commit a horrible war crime and just destroy a city for no conceivable right. reason. And like, how do you deal with that? Like, that's just, it's the absolute shattering of all that you're told and seen and heard and, and taught about it. And it's just like, Oh, so I guess that's all lies, or no, how, what? Wait. Right. I kept thinking, how... And it's, again, the, the, the children's crusade aspect hits hard again. It's like, you're a kid, like, you know, like, <laughs> we're adults, we're, we're, we've gone through a lot of this process in our lives already, but, you know, we constantly are surprised, well, maybe horrified, if not necessarily surprised, about how things and politics continue to keep growing worse, at least for now. And it's still difficult to handle. It still causes a, a strong impact on us. So to face this level of like shattering of delusion or shattering of certain narratives up front right. and as a kid, there's, right. there's no conceivable, simple way to even imagine it. Of course. So, I mean, of course his psyche is going to break, and of course he's going to be like, sure, I don't know, aliens are real now, why the fuck not? Everything's real and nothing is real. Maybe alien if that's the case, I'm going to decide aliens are real and that they're going to let me bang this hot chick. That is, I'm going to create my own reality for a while. Because <laughs> e everything's surreal, which um, there's definitely not any kind of parallel to our current time. Uh, especially <laughs> not today as we're recording this. There's definitely nothing parallel to this. Um, not at all. No, no, of course How not. How could it be? <laughs> Henry the Fonz Winkler did suggest treating Trump like Mussolini and hang him upside down, so that's interesting. <laughs> so the Fonz continues to be cooler than Chachi. Good for him. Good for him. For all of you Happy Days fans listening, I don't know. No one's going to get the reference. I'm old. It's fine. It's fine. It, it, we're all having a time. Yeah. A time. It, it is a strange time to be alive. I mean, you do get to a sense of, hey, that well, that's happening. I mean, look how many people have kind of lost their minds already. Like, there are people who don't believe in germs now, or people who don't believe in vaccines and viruses. There's, like, QAnon people who believe in these insane conspiracy theories running out of pizza shops. Like, <laughs> nothing makes sense. Let's believe in something that makes me feel cool. <laughs> That's, and so it goes. But I, I, one of the things, and I'm not sure how much I've mentioned it to you because I, I talk about it on Twitter occasionally, and a lot of people have, have told this. Um, I'm currently researching and working with like utopias, mm. and, and uh, especially in science fiction, and specifically Ursula Guin's *The Dispossessed*. Ooh. And on like reinvented re reinvented utopias and how it's specifically dispossessed, but a couple of others, they really break what was the traditional classical utopian mode and so on. And mm. as a way of, for, it's both, it is a coping mechanism for me. It was like, okay, so let's, let's not get lost in dystopias. 
but also like, yeah, no, I can find some good in this. And the <laughs> escapism does strike you a bit strong in this novel and uh, Breakfast of Champions. And I was like, hmm, I wonder how to deal with this. Because my, my response and my current like sort of uh, literary, academic, political stance, at least regarding this, it's like, you know, it, it can have like a hopeful element to it. It can be positive. But what happens or what, how can it not? How can it be like just this pure escapism where nothing matters and, oh, maybe aliens are real, maybe not. Maybe I'm in a human zoo, maybe not. Does it matter? No. And how how does working in this particularly, well, shall we say, more bleak direction works? Um, I'm also reminded of, we're talking about movies, when I watched, not that long ago, I watched Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which mm. was deeply traumatic. I still haven't seen that movie. Can you believe it? Ugh, oh, I'm oh terrible. I know it's really good, and I've been wanting to see it for years, and for some reason I haven't gotten around to it. Ah. I, w- I won't spoil it, so I'll, I'll hold off on that. I, I know it's got a real downer of an ending. I know that. It's uh, it's the type of one that makes me give, like, oh, oh. It's the one that takes away my sleep. Not in the horrifying Oof. way, but the disturbing one, uh, which is yeah. just as bad. But it does, like, I guess in a way, like, my, my response has been, like, no, I, I, I refuse to accept that. I'd rather be naive and... Uh, be called that than like just accepting the full bleakness and you know just right. the fatalism and right. in a way it does, like i do accept like just yeah i i i recognize a certain naiveness to to my to, to me and like this utopian aspect like yeah, maybe it is but it it still helps me to keep going day to day and on days right. like these it's um uh, it's good to be able to sit down and talk about literature and uh do the podcast and you know that's that's fine too (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's one kind of i think we've been going for a little bit now and uh considering everything just both how we are and and the topic itself it's been really great i have just one kind of less point to add um okay but if you have anything to go ahead i think i i uh, it's a nice way to sort of carry us on through to, to rapping. I don't think I have an extra thing to add. I'm sure after this I'll be like, no, oh, why didn't I bring up the... But <laughs> nothing comes to mind right now. I mean, I, I did the ep- we did an episode a, a while back on The Dispossessed, and I'm like, I could have said this, I could have commented on this, I could have said that. And I'm like, this this will be my cross to bear. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but my what I what I was going through, and, and this also helps us tie with one of the things we talked in your bonus episode, which is how how to deal with our, our, our responsibility as writers, because at the end of the day, we're talking about a very real event, uh, which is the Dresden firebombing, uh, a very serious war crime and very traumatic experience of PTSD, of engaging with all that. And how does one do it through fiction, be it as mm. uh, a personal experience in fictional t- retelling or as uh, a memoir and a, effectively a more biographical in tone? Right. And how do we, ca- how can we relate and how do we do it with, in a sense of both like respect to our own memory and to our own work, but with others and, and this, like, it's it's the very difficult and nigh impossible to answer question of like responsibility and how yeah how do yeah we act? I mean yeah if you if you take the really hard line of like yes you have a responsibility to educate then you end up sort of clamping down on any kind of free expression and mm-hmm. you can get incredibly like moralistic and kind of just demand propaganda all the time which is not good obviously and then um i mean a lot of art is expressive and not necessarily supposed to be didactic and demanding that all art is like here to teach us a lesson is no (laughs) big Mm -hmm. no to that but i mean there is something to be said about examining how the way we take events and turn them into entertainment and entertainment designed to sort of titillate and please 
the viewer or the audience is, I, I do think that if we're doing that, it is worthwhile to take some kind of responsibility and try not to just really stop and fucking think about what you're doing while you're making entertainment out of this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. we we see so much of, of war being used as like beautiful and glorious and heroic, like even, even like fucking world war one you know the first wonder woman movie celebrated world war one yeah and made it look like glorious and beautiful and there was nothing beautiful about that war there were no good guys in that it was just completely senseless and awful and for me to like turn that into the backdrop of where like some heroic lady in a, in a gold bikini can prove herself it's like are you fucking kidding me yeah that's really objectionable to me i'm sorry no you're totally right <laughs> like the, the the one the, the time i've seen world war one well expressed is uh it's, it's an ubisoft game which is weird but it's very very good which is uh, this war of mine no is it hmm. i think so which is basically a 2D thing, and it's just—it's Spain. It's Spain through and through, and it's like it's a beautiful work, and it is a marketable work. And how do you deal with that? But it's also like historical with lots of documental data and a lot of bonuses and collectibles are just like telling you about specific things and elements of the war. So it's it's very good in a lot of ways. I, I really like that game, and but it's also like. Yeah, what what could be considered an act of heroism is ultimately, yeah, no, this this is how military hierarchy works, and this is these are the consequences, and mm. it's sad and it's awful, and they're children, and they're people's like, oh, this is glory, we're we our uniforms and our flags, and we're getting right. slaughtered by machine guns, right? So we're just thinking about how like when they were crawling across the mud to try to you know t- take over ground like just how much of that mud was just like human remains like yeah. you're crawling through mud and like human remains to try to just get to another trench and conquer some more fucking mud like there's there's nothing glorious or beautiful about that yeah it, it is simply it is simply the reality of war, which is dirt and blood and guts and horror. Yeah. It's simply that. And I mean, if you're going to make up some fucking story about heroics and and, and nobility and, and all that fucking glorious bullshit, like it's about as real as making up a story about some space aliens who watch you fuck a porn star. Yeah. It's exactly as sensible as all that. And in that sense, like no matter how wild the Trophamadorians are and those elements in the story, they never take away from what is actually the tone and how death and war yeah. and the firebomb is just... It's something that has no explanation and no sense and none yeah. is given nor attempted. Yeah. Because it's as good as why? it's as good an explanation as anything else is. Yes. Like there's that great scene where he's in the veterans hospital after he's had a nervous breakdown and his roommate is like very much the sort of heroic war hawk who's got like a girlfriend who's like a third of his age and he's this fucking alpha <laughs> chad guy and he's writing about he's writing like, Ah uh, yeah, the bombing of Dresden, it's totally justifiable. It's fine because of blah 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 bullshit reason and Billy Pilgrim says to him, like, Yeah, I agree with you. The bombing of Dresden is absolutely was totally fine. A bunch of space aliens told me while they were putting me in a human zoo with a sexy lady. And and it's like, here you have just these competing delusions. It's just that one is like hornier in a weirder way. And, (laughs) but they're both like just as valid interpretations of this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so strong and so wild a thing that's, you know, this is fair because the, because it is. Because it's nothing. It, it's no point. It's no heroics. It's no glory. It's just senseless violence, death, and destruction. And as such, to have this, oh, aliens and existing in time and 
unstuck in time. It's like, fair. <laughs> because it simply isn't. Because it simply isn't sensible. It simply isn't reasonable. It doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's one way of considering th this work. Like, it's it's one I definitely recommend. It's very strong. Yeah, and very, read it. It's good. It's very really wild. Good. But it's it's one that even through so such strange elements as like the Tralfamadorians, which like wait what what's going on? It, it, yeah. it go I knew nothing about the book before going into it, other than it talking about the firebombies because of the prologue introduction. Um, mm. So it was wait what? It, it hit me out <laughs> of left field. Uh, but it does it it's it works. It works brilliantly, and. I guess that's that's kind of the thing. We're talking about like responsibility and whatnot. It's fantasy and, and sci-fi, or even like this mix. It, it, of course, it's done carefully, but it, it it can be done. It's like it's not oh, there is this pure realist form, like um, because I mentioned it, and because this struck me as particularly relevant to what I'm doing. Ursula Gwynn mentioned in, uh, an ex a National Book Award speech. Uh, in 71, 73. <laughs> um, and I think this is kind of relates to like, yeah, no, the fantastical, the sci the sci-fi, the absurd elements here, like mm -hmm. they work a lot in portraying reality by being fictional and right. exhibiting this, this work. Uh, she mentions, at this point, realism is perhaps the least adequate means of understanding or portraying the uh, incredible <laughs> realities of our existence. The fantasist may be talking as seriously as any sociologist and a good deal more directly about human life as it is lived and as it might be lived and as it ought to be lived. For, after mm -hmm. all, as great scientists have said and as all children know, it is above all by the imagination that we achieve perception and compassion and hope. Mm. It is ultimately a hopeful speech, uh, so I, I can get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think... Even adding some more salt to it, like, yeah, fiction has a lot of power. And even adding such wild things to a horrific story of the Dresden firebombings can achieve right. majestic, powerful, and kind of oddly, horrifically beautiful work. It's a beautiful work on how painful and grimy it is. Absolutely. So, yeah, pick up a copy, read it. It's good. Go for it's it. Good book. We, we definitely recommend it. Highly recommended. So, where can we find and follow more of your work? Okay. Well, I have a podcast about writing. It's called Write Good. That's R I T E G U D. It's our Twitter handle is at Write Good. We're hosted at kittysneezes.com and we do episodes about just some aspect of writing, and we do bonus episodes where we get into a book. Um, I'm also a published author. Uh, I've got a story out in the October, November, no, sorry, the September-October issue of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. It's called The Fairy mm -hmm. Egg, and I'm very proud of that, so you might want to check that out. I also post a lot of my own fiction up at our podcast's Patreon. And a lot of those episodes or a lot of those posts are unlocked. So if you want to go read some of my short stories, go on, check them out. They're up there. They're free. I'd love it if you'd read them. Yeah, de definitely go, do go check this work. It's it's great. And the podcast is excellent. I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Thank you both for inviting us and for having such incredible suggestions and recommendations like Vonnegut is definitely someone who I did not have on my radar at all before, but now I was like, hmm, definitely yeah. someone who is worth having read and worth knowing about and worth reading more. So yeah, his thank you uh, so much work for that. has definitely been an influence on my writing. From our part, you can find us on, we are on Twitter as well as at LeftPagePod. Uh, you can also find our Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash left page. We have our monthly poetry club episodes, which we've been able to get into the uh, the fun of the things, uh, which has mm. been fun. We basically select or choose or go after a poem which we know or not, or we recently discovered, and mm. read it, try to interpret it, and go on like 
it, it's a wild thing to do, but like an original interpretation, just like how does this affect hmm. to us and how can we think about it on our own perspectives and such. So um, Interesting. we did that with, uh, <laughs> that was a fun episode. We did that with Baudelaire's To a Passerby that is unlocked Ooh. on our main feed. That was a wild discussion. Our discussions usually go in strange directions. I can't explain why, but it's good. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have the reading corner, as I've been calling, which is uh, basically a short text uh, that I managed to write, usually on other fictional works that don't end up making the podcast because time and other things. I'm endlessly reading, so to record and edit it, it, it takes it takes time and it gets a bit difficult. But yeah. it, it's something that I... I want to try and it's something I do monthly as well at least one or more so like so here's some other stuff and also a, a branching a bit into some of the academic research I'm doing just to share some more of that which wouldn't usually make it into a pod um, but mm. who knows so that's something you can check on there too I have a little text from like a, a new year message which I wrote which is also unlocked as a sort of sample and yeah, if you can support our work, you can support Write Good, please do. It's always good and helpful to know that like we're making something interesting that people like following. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, thank <laughs> you for a lovely episode. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you all soon. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Until the next one. Bye-bye. <laughs>